Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 21. As most of you know by now, Michael Graves, one of the most influential architects of our generation, passed away last week. To learn a little more about the man behind the work, we'll be speaking with Patrick Burke, principal and studio head of Michael Graves Architecture and Design. We'll also share a conversation Amelia and I had with Craig Hodgetts while visiting his Hyperloop Supra Studio at UCLA's Ideas Campus last week. And we'll touch on some of the other items in the news. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. How's everyone's week? Excellent. Good. Yeah. Amelia, what have you been up to? I have been doing a fair amount of walking. This last weekend, Honest and I went on a wonderful, incredibly like day-long hike through an area in East LA Lincoln Park area of Ascot Hills Park, which I had never heard of a week ago. There's a lot of places in LA that I've never heard of, <laughs> despite the fact that I live there now and was born there. But it's something very specific about LA is that people love to hate on it as having like a real dearth of green space, a lack of really good accessible parks. And in a way, that's absolutely true. And in a way, it's absolutely false because there's so much green space in LA that is just vertical and not horizontal. Instead of having like a fantastic central park, we have places like Griffith Park, which technically cover more land area than places like Central Park, but are just stacked over mountains and vertical topography that make them less accessible to just people walking around on the street. But nonetheless, fantastic places to go and amazing public spaces. So Anas and I took this trip where we just walked up this Ascot Hills Park up the Radio Tower Hills where you can get incredible views 360 of the surrounding valleys. So into Monterey Park, into downtown, you can see the Hollywood sign, which is a great, <laughs> a great means of locating yourself from any place in L.A. It was just amazing. I'll also point out that there's this great, this recent new project by Michael Maltzen in uh, the Arts District of Los Angeles that runs directly behind SciArc. It's kind of like this incredibly long building that runs directly parallel to the SciArc structure. And you can see it from up here in a way that really just makes the city feel that much smaller, which is amazing in a city like LA to get an experience like that. So if anyone is looking for a fantastic hike, very accessible in LA, go to Ascot Hills Park and you will not be disappointed. See, people do walk in LA all over the place. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do a lot of things. <laughs> That involve vlogging. And they also like go on their scooters and go on their, uh, those unicycle things that I had since only seen in the big and Heatherwick renderings for the Google campus. Like it's a motorized unicycle that is like a Segway, but just one wheel. Anyway, they do all that stuff. Many modes of transit in LA. And a uh, shout out to Alex Walter in our office who just finished the LA Marathon on the weekend. Big yes. congratulations to him. Congratulations, Alex. First marathon. He must be tired. He's been in pain all week, but we're pretty proud of him. <laughs> he finished. Good job. Yeah. Ken, how's your week? Going pretty well. Had an interesting conversation with a former employer this past Monday. We were talking about a, a project that we worked on together, and uh, he let on that uh, he really wished I hadn't left. And we were going through some of the discussions around what had transpired and why that happened. And he gave me some advice and I, I explained to him that uh, I really uh, wasn't looking to leave. I said, but you know, it was either my furnace or my health insurance. And uh, I was either oh. going to have to pay for a furnace or pay for my health care. And I figured I, in the middle of October, knowing Minnesota winters, I was going to err on uh, the side of having heat. So I don't get it. He was giving you advice? Sounds like you should have been giving him advice. Yeah, well, the advice was kind of went something along the lines like this. When I say that, when I explain to you the situation and you get an offer, you should come back to me and explain to me that you have an offer and then he can make another decision. 
which is kind of what he was leading to, that he was going to make a different decision. And he's got so much work right now, and there's no one in the Twin Cities looking for work. Everyone is hired up. Yeah, it sounds like he's still in the 2009 mindset. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's really strange about Minnesota right now. I think if you're, especially in Minneapolis, if you were to come into Minneapolis by plane, there are so many cranes in the Twin Cities right now that I'm almost certain that your plane will be rerouted if you flew over the Twin Cities. And Minneapolis is still in a building boom and they're still constantly being pulling permits for more and more rentals and condos and, and all sorts of things. So there's so much work here right now and so few people that do the work that it's really led to a really strange situation that I haven't quite been around before. Well, yeah, we've been seeing that too just here on uh, the Arconnect job board. It's just a ton of job opportunities and not nearly the number of job seekers that there were in the past. So it really is. I mean, it's the employee's market right now. It's getting to that point, I think, and probably during the dot-com boom era where you can actually start requesting signing bonuses. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like right now, that if you are that in demand and you have a particular skill set, you can probably do a pretty good job by yourself by just asking for, you know what, what's the signing bonus at this point? Because I'm pretty happy where I am, but, you know, I'm certainly looking at the opportunities. You know, if that's the mindset you want to take, that happened, and I have friends that had that happen to so that's one thing that's been going on this week. The other thing I've been seeing too, which is really kind of part and parcel with the kind of building boom we're having in the Twin Cities, is there's still the memory of building during the recession and the prices were really, really competitive. The window, I've been predicting the window is going to be closing for a while and I kind of thought it closed about a year ago. And sure enough, the prices now that people are getting to do small projects are so elevated that they can't believe, they're like, why is it that much? And, and part of, you know, 10, probably 15 to 20% of that cost is that people are just don't have anybody to do the work. So they're going to throw numbers. They're not going to sharpen their pencils like they did in 2009 or 2010. They're really throwing numbers at a dartboard and saying, if you really want me to do this work, it's going to cost us, it's going to cost you this much money. And we, the office I'm at now, we did a very small remodel of an existing kitchen in a daycare center. And all we added was a hood and, and extended the kitchen maybe three feet to do that project, to add a hood, to change the ceiling. And, and there was one other thing. Uh, there was a, a prep sink that had to be added to do that work. 70 grand. <gasps> really? 70, wow. 70 grand. When the partner came to me and said, how much do you think this is going to cost? I said, 15 to 20. Wow. Because it's yeah. good. And it's this, and it's a very small amount of work. He said, 65 to 70 grand. And it just blew my mind. That's where the numbers are right now in the Twin Cities for, for work. So I've been dealing with that as well. And we had a project come today that um, we started to see the estimate, started to see that the client has his memory of, you know, four years ago, five years ago. And that still resonates for him. And he doesn't understand, nobody ever understands that aspect of the business. And it's just the thing I struggled with when I was doing schools is that people were penny wise, pound foolish all the time. And you can never explain to them, you can never get it through their head that the money they're going to save today is going to be enormous if you just do this project now. You are getting really, really competitive bids. If you wait 10 years, the project you thought you were going to get 10 years from now, the one that you wanted and you, know, you didn't want in 2009, you won't get that project in 2020. That project will cost two-thirds more just because you waited. People think that if they wait, they're going to get a better project later on. And, you know, the economy could turn down again, and they may learn that that may happen for them. But it's not happening right now, not in the Twin Cities. So, But if the economy drops, then they're not going to have the money to do the job then exactly. anyway. Exactly. So the only people building when the economy was weighed low were very, very wealthy people who didn't have to worry about it. 
So yeah, you got to ride the wave when it's on you, right? I'm not a surfer. Is that? (laughs) (laughs) And this goes to what I've been saying about American people. They're so short-sighted. They don't ever understand that the taxes that go to pay for their schools and so they can have these really sustainable communities. And, you know, when they talk about like $100 over, your taxes are going up maybe $100 a year for every $100,000 of property you own. And, you know, Minnesota is pretty, they keep claiming that they're really taxed through the roof here. And I lived in New Jersey. Uh, the, ha- the house I have here in Minnesota would cost two and a half times what it, in New Jersey. So I know what the reality is about taxes. And that same house in New Jersey that I have here, I'd pay twelve dollars to $20,000 in property taxes. Here I pay $2,400 a year. I mean, if they said you wanted to raise my taxes $100 a year for every $100,000 in my house, I'd be fantastic. Go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. If that means we get great schools. Absolutely. Exactly. Great schools, streets. I get police. I get fire. I get all that stuff. I get pickup twice a week or once a week and I get single source recycling. Great. Oh, I'm envious of that. But the one cool thing that I've been seeing a lot here is that the food trucks, you know, they're starting to build into storefronts, which is kind of fun to see. Those are really interesting projects or potentially interesting projects. We're going through, a, you know, the craft beer boom. It's still happening here. And we're also now going through a distillery boom. So we have distillery and cocktail rooms booming all over the place. What about coffee in Minneapolis? You know, we're inundated with really bad coffee and we have one really, really bad. We have one that's a local brand. It's called Caribou. And um, their big deal is they do a lot of work for the military. So they build a lot on military bases across the world. Uh, The coffee is not that great. That's a chain. Um, Then they have Dunn Brothers, which is another chain. And then we got Starbucks. But then we have the really nice you know, high-end coffee shops where you go and you know it's like you're going to a good restaurant that you don't have to put anything in your coffee. The coffee's that good. You don't have to supplement it with sugar or cream. You can just drink it straight and it's a really good coffee. So we haven't quite had that level. There's some, there's some, but it's still not on a, I think on par with some other places in the country. Ken, are you guys going to get a Prince, one of these Prince concerts that are traveling around? (laughs) Probably. He's like doing these pop-up short notice concerts or something. I didn't really. Doesn't he just do that every week in Minneapolis? Like, Should I check my backyard? (laughs) Is that a casual, subtle, you know, tip off that he might be playing in my backyard tonight, Donna? He might be. I I heard that sometimes he'll just show up at your door in a nice suit. (laughs) Come in and say, can I plug this in? Well, you know, it's true though, because he's a Jehovah's Witness and he actually does go door to door. Oh, that's true. Yes, he does do that. That's true. Yeah. He just won't play your music. Yeah, he he won't won't do the music part, but. uh, I'll listen to him. Talk about it. (laughs) He'd be the first one I listened to. Well, our connector, Stephen Ward, was able to go to a Prince concert last week. And he's a huge Prince fan and used to live in Minneapolis. So he yeah. was very excited about his, oh, his man. getting to see Prince perform. Awesome. Yeah. I have this thing with like those kinds. When I lived in New Jersey, I never got the Springsteen thing. It took me moving away from New Jersey to get the like, oh, yeah, yeah, Springsteen. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Listen to the music. all the- And so I listened to him. And uh, so if I move away from Minnesota, I probably will get into Prince. But I was never really a Prince fan. That's funny. I almost bought tickets to a tragically hip show that's coming to LA in a few months. I don't even know if you guys have heard of tragically hip, but I basically grew up on them in Canada. Oh, I thought They're you like- were like describing the nature oh. of the show. <laughs> it's like it took me a minute to so figure tragically that out. Too. Hip. Yeah, no, no, that's it, tragically hip is the name of a band. 
That's how lame I am. It was like <laughs> Tragically Hip has always been at like, you know, Led Zeppelin level in Canada with you know really? popularity oh, really? and, and respect. But they never really broke through in, in the U.S. at all. But it's one of those bands that I, I guess I appreciate more since I've been living in the U.S., which has been now hmm. the majority of my life. But it is funny. Sometimes you need to leave to appreciate what you left behind. That's what you have to do. Mm. Yes. So Donna, what's up with you? I have had an exciting last few days, starting with on Thursday of last week, a surprise visit. Speaking of Prince showing up at your door, um, all of a sudden at noon on Thursday, I heard that Killian Riano, podcast guest and frequent Arconnect contributor and all around awesome guy, was giving a lecture at IMA where I work. And I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it until the day it happened. So I tried to rally through social media as many people as I could to get to the, to the lecture. And a couple people showed up. I texted people 20 minutes before it was starting and said, get to the IMA right now. And a couple people were able to do that. Killian gave a great lecture. He talked about his work with Design Agency. And I prompted him to talk a little about the architecture lobby, which he discussed here on the podcast. And just a really great talk about that kind of work that's happening around the edges of architecture that I think is moving towards the center of practice and that we're all going to be focusing more on in the future. So that was great. It was a great quick little visit. And I got to meet Killian in the flesh for the first time. And we've, we've been connecting together for 10 years at least. So it was nice to meet him. And then Monday was the exciting day in all of Indiana because Tom Main came to Muncie where Ball State University is, and gave a lecture. And I was joking that, you know, architects were coming from far and wide, Hoosier architects, to uh, to see Tom Main speak. I have to say, it was an amazing day. I was fortunately able to be involved with things he was doing all day long because of my work with the AIA. And so he started with a uh, recorded interview that should be on the internet by now with the chair of the architecture program, Mahesh Das, asking him questions a lot about his childhood and how his childhood upbringing affected, you know, how his later work in architecture he gave a talk with some AIA representatives about practice, just, you know, how do you practice? And I thought one of the interesting things he said was that architects are terrible at asking for money. And we know this is true. We all know this is true. One of the reasons we command such low fees is that we're not willing to ask. But he pointed out that in every other country in the world, if someone says that costs a dollar, they expect you to come back by saying, no, I'll give you 50 cents. And then you settle on 75. And that's just how it works everywhere in the world, except the United States architecture world where they say, I'll give you 50 cents. And we say, thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, that we don't do ourselves any favors. We don't somehow value ourselves enough. But then he followed that up with a comment that, you know, he's got lots of young architects that work for them. And, you know, he pays them shit because that's what he gets paid. So <laughs> we were talking a lot about practice. It was it was good. And then he gave a two-hour lecture, an hour and 10 minutes or so of his own work, and then answering questions for another 45 minutes or so. And um I mean, I believe he's 70 and he just has so much energy and he, he talks about just working his ass off for another decade at least. And, um, you know, he's amazing, really intelligent, really smart guy. He spoke very openly about coming close to bankruptcy back in the 90s and then um, pulling it back together. He talked about how important it is to have a good business manager, which in his case is his wife, who he could not speak highly enough of, and how she has an MBA and is able to do the kind of things like demand a high fee that so many of us architects are afraid to ask for. And he, I wanted to clear the air a little bit about something. I think I commented on Arconnect or on, on one of the podcasts, actually, not one of our early podcasts, that I heard a rumor that Tom Main had said, I don't discuss aesthetics with the clients. That's not their business, something like that. It sounded quite inflammatory in the way that I quoted it. And I think I had read it on Twitter. He explained that further as what his role is, is to 
meet the client's needs, to meet their program and their functional requirements and their sort of cultural requirements as far as what their building has to do within their city and their community. But he doesn't discuss the aesthetics of the building with the clients because the aesthetic is his part of the design. That the clients weigh in on all of the things that they really need out of the design. And then he does not, not, and then the aesthetics evolve as part of that whole process. And those are his. So I asked him if clients come to him and say, Hey, I want something that's a Tom Main project, you know, that looks like a Tom Main style building. And he said, No, they come to him for his design skills that results in a building that works for them and does all the things they need it to do and frequently pushes technology to new places like the San Francisco Federal Building, which doesn't have any air conditioning in the offices because it doesn't need it. But that the way the building ultimately looks is a product of that process and not something that he agrees with the client at the beginning, okay, it will look like this. So I felt like I kind of misspoke when I said on an earlier podcast this comment about aesthetics. The other thing he talked about that I thought was neat was starting with one of the first project he really became known for was the orrery at, at the Cape Mantellini restaurant, which is a little model. The Cape Mantellini restaurant is now closed, but it's a model of the planets that was built up in this contraption up into the skylight. And um, I'm sure you LA guys are familiar with it. And uh, he talked about how that was the thing that humans want from architecture is this thing that connects us to the world and to culture and that is not a functional piece. It's something that just makes us feel good about the world and life and all of the things on this planet. And I thought it was a really nice uh, nice way of putting it, which I would refer again to my friend Sean Starowitz's quote that culture is a protein, not a dessert. We need our culture. We need our protein. So it was great. I mean, it was a it was a full day for him and he just kept going and he could have kept talking well into the night, I'm sure of it. And I was so impressed by how accessible he was and how funny and just very engaging. And it was a really great, refreshing and exciting day. So I'm feeling excited about architecture again. You know, we all have our ups and downs with it. Are you not feeling excited about architecture? Oh, we all have our days. I, Absolutely. You less than others, I think. Probably. I'm overall generally, yes, very excited about architecture. I do love it. But then to see other people who have done, had a, a career path and a trajectory that's completely different from me, but they still are doing their thing and they love it. As I keep saying, there's room for all of us. You know, there's room for Tom Maines. There's room for Saarinen's. There's, you know, there's room for all of us. For Jimenez Lai, there's, there's room for all of us to do this kind of stuff and, uh, appreciate it and respect one another for doing it. Definitely. Can I just say something about what you just said? Yes. You know, I think, you know, there's a lot of threads right now on the, on the website that are really like talking a lot about this architect as ego. And, and what's interesting about the architect and the, the, the people that we talk about and love to, and people love to hate on is that, you know, they're responsible for so little of the built environment. You know, when I go on and on and I rail against Calatrava, it's partly because I just, me just wanted to pick, I'll pick my windmill to tilt at it. And, and, you know, he's not going to sweat me at all. But at the same time, like Donna said, there's a there's a place for everybody. And all of these architects don't even amount to what's being built today. And we spend so much time tearing them down. And, you know, he's a great interview. And I guarantee you, there was no one going there to kill Tom Main in a lecture. And, you know, I've been in a lecture where he's got into it with Kenneth Frampton. I think I mentioned it before in other podcasts where, you know, he was lecturing at Columbia and student asked a particular question and, and he didn't really answer it. And Kenneth Frampton really pushed back on him. And there was this, this almost fisticuffs in the middle of the theater at Columbia. 
So it's, wow. it sounds like he's come around a lot, you know, come full circle and or maybe not full circle, but he's kind of turned a corner where he's more in this kind of sage architect role where he's kind of, you know, there's this wisdom being passed on from him and he's not, he seems less combative. Is that, is that the case or is it his passion turned to architecture and not inwardly fighting these ridiculous battles with stupid architects about whether or not he sucks? I would think that he has the confidence at this point that he doesn't have to bother with people who don't appreciate what he's doing. He he says he's able to tell clients now, you know, if you want a project from me, I come back in a year and a half because I'm so busy right now. So, but I also, I do think some of it's wisdom as well. Just, you know, architecture is a long, slow profession. It takes time to get to that place where you have that confidence and you have that level of skill, but you still have that desire to keep pushing and working, which he definitely has. I would also say, though, that we Hoosiers are just so friendly. (laughs) No one was attacking him too hard because we're just nice people here in the Midwest. (laughs) Well, now he's got his own home to design, too. So there's like this whole kind of not a capstone feeling to it, but there is definitely kind of a coming home feeling of every time I see Tom Mains speak, there's always this level of inconceivable energy, Donna, that I, I can totally imagine right now that I'm just like, I can't, not only can I not believe how like his actual age, but that he's still pushing in these different avenues and yeah. like trying to create new stuff. It's awesome. Yeah, he is just pushing form, pushing what drawing means. We, we were lucky enough that my good friend and professor Josh Kogeshal at Ball State put together a collection of various drawings of Tom Main starting back in 1978 or so with some of the very early houses and how his drawing style has changed over the decades. And Tom just kind of sat down in the audience while Josh flipped through these slides. And Tom would say, yeah, this one I was getting interested in, you know, looking at the entire building all in one viewpoint. And so it became very layered. And I mean, he's really an artist in how he puts these drawings together as well. And I think that's something I also miss. And I think he is trying with the computer to get some of that back. But the way that drawings could really be an exploration of a project. And one of the things he said was that he realized early in his career that there were drawings that were not about the building, but were an object in themselves or were a a project in themselves. And a lot of his early exploded axonometrics and whatnot. And then now the work he's doing now, which is like three-dimensional visualization drawings that then become form. It's very much about not drawing a project, but the drawing being the project and the level of discovery that can come through drawing as a sort of almost a trance-like state or something. It, It was, it was great. It was great. Sounds like a nice experience. Yeah. You guys ready to get this show on the road? Yeah, let's do. Let's do it. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction last week, Amelia and I had a chance to visit Craig Hodgett's Hyperloop Studio. It's actually officially titled Cypertopia Supra Studio. For those unfamiliar with the Hyperloop project, it's a radical high-speed transportation proposal envisioned by Elon Musk, who most people are familiar with as the founder of PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, Solar City. The initial plan calls for a pressurized, capsulized train to travel between LA and San Francisco in around 35 minutes. So far, it seems like the science is mostly there. It's proven. And from what I understand, there's going to be a lot of hurdles with politics, land rights, I'm sure, psychological hurdles. But if it happens, or uh, according to Greg, when it happens, it'll drastically change the urban landscapes and our relationships with neighboring cities. So we met with some of the students looking at various proposals for transit hubs and uh, spoke with Craig Hodgetts about the project. So let's listen to the conversation right now. I'd love to start out with you expanding a little bit more on the whole white paper aspect of this. This is obviously unprecedented, huge project, so many different things involved. How did you, when beginning the studio, kind of carve out what types of disciplines and what type of work you would want the students to be doing and then assign them to different things. So like, how did you find the 
the spectrum uh, of activities that needed to be going on? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> and it evolved a little bit as, as we went along. But, you know, the first thing was to kind of satisfy ourselves that it wasn't pie in the sky, that it had some plausibility. And I have a background in automotive engineering, so I had a pretty good ability to interpret basically what they were talking about. So the technology seemed plausible in that you've got this extremely low atmospheric pressure, about half of 1% of what we're experiencing. So that reduced the drag enormously. And they've hypothesized air skis like air hockey, and that's nearly friction-free. We've now discussed magnetic ones. but And then they have a turbine that is scavenging the air, a little bit of air that's there, and then there are some aerodynamic principles and so forth. So, so that all seemed actually pretty rudimentary in a way. And so then you look at that and you say, well, what are the actual design issues? And the one that we wanted to prioritize was the psychological passenger comfort, et cetera, issues. And we wanted then to prioritize the logistics of handling these capsules as they, because we basically took their pro forma, you know, the thing that they calculated in terms of cost of the overall system that the white paper did, the passenger handling capacity at 30 capsules per, I mean, one capsule every 30 seconds, et cetera, which resulted in a price, they thought, of about $30 per ticket to San Francisco for a 25-minute trip. And that included, you know, pylons, tubes, right-of-way, everything. So taking that for granted, the big hiccups were how the Dickens do you turn these, you know, the station dynamics. I kept saying how these stations operate is going to make or break the whole system. So that was a number one priority. And then the number two priority are the capsule interiors. We didn't confront the, um, the technology of propulsion at all. And we also didn't really confront emergency measures um, at this point. We wanted to get the basic parameters going. But we did confront the economics of the uh, route. And that's primarily because, and this was my mantra <laughs> initially, the, um, the material costs for the tube and the pylons and the loads, seismic and otherwise, for the right-of-way far outweigh the costs of everything else. You've got hundreds of miles of pylons and tubes that are really the largest piece of the cost of the whole system. That's why one of the students, Mac, was saying it's not a very expensive station, because relatively it's not. So we also focused quite a lot on how do we make the tubes structural so that we can reduce the number of pylons. And Musk's original white paper shows the tubes side by side. And from a structural point of view, of course, that makes a lot more sense to stack them because you get beam strength. So we have the number of pylons right at the start. And I felt that was really important to do because it also impacts the station design. Again, it's almost like highway design. If you've got your tubes stacked, your ingress and egress can be on separate levels. If they're side by side, what do you do? You punt, essentially. So um, that was a twofer. So we focused on the tube, pylons, station design, and the interior of the capsule. Oh, and boarding. And 
In terms of boarding, the students looked at various aspects. You saw some of it, sliding doors, go-wing doors, and they didn't talk so much about the cartridge loading, but that was the sort of loading. And um, there were advocates for each one, and there are reasons, maybe some technical reasons, that, it, that the go-wings don't really work, primarily structural issues, because you've got to seal them to hold an internal pressure of 15 pounds a square inch more than the exterior pressure. So suddenly that's like a bathysphere, those things are. So um, maybe there's a technical way to achieve the gull wings, but not necessarily. The cartridge seems like the best way from a pressurization point of view. But they considered all of these factors. It was just amazing because they're, for the most part, architects. And you start talking to them, you know, about pressure vessels and, and uh, you know, sort of stresses. Because in architectural terms, 20 or 30 pounds per square foot is what we deal with as architects. How about 15 pounds per square inch bursting pressure? It's 150 times more than architects ever deal with. So then we launched into, you know, carbon fiber structures and things like that. Got Peter Testa up here from uh, SciArc, who is, knows all about carbon fiber. I've probably studied with him. So the, it's kind of a crossroads of thinking about you know, material technologies, comfort. It's, a, it's just a staggering range of uh, elements. Did the students conceive these loading strategies themselves or were they given the, uh, the different... No, they weren't strategies. given them. Uh-huh. They, there was a lot of back and forth and dialogue about it. How do you optimize this? What are the considerations for that? But in the end, they made up their own minds about, you know, we would have long dialogues about chalk talks about all the different issues. For instance, one of the things that came about and, you know, is a discussion of the aerodynamics. If this is in a tube and it's no longer ground-based, then they needed to look at the aerodynamics of a projectile as opposed to the aerodynamics of a train. And you'll see that, like, all those uh, high-speed trains all sloop down in the front to scoop the air up and over the train and keep it from going underneath. But we're not in that kind of condition, right? So the configuration of the capsule came under scrutiny because Elon Musk's drawings show a scoopy front and a scoopy back by some illustrator, which when you really think about it, maybe doesn't make sense. So um, so is it a vacuum? Near vacuum. Near vacuum. Yeah, so 90... aerodynamics is not... Really... Well, aerodynamics are a factor. But not as much as a train. Not, not no. nearly in the same level can you talk a little bit about how the energy will be dis- distributed and how like, the solar energy used to run these capsules would be stored and integrated into the actual architecture of the stations uh, or not? Well, we, there are several competing things there. And actually, some of the early studies the students did in Corp, and it just hasn't been carried that far, but a few students got very excited about the idea of, Musk has an idea that there would be um, solar cells for the entire length of the run. And so a few of the students decided that they could actually make a, an apparatus which followed the sun on the outside of the tube. And they did some studies of that. And I'm sure we'll pursue it in the next term. But that was a low priority, the self-sustaining energy thing. It's kind of an add-on at this point. It would have been great to incorporate it, but <laughs> it just didn't go that far.
So, but it's implicit. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that the hyper-efficiency of this almost frictionless transport is going to consume very, very minimal en- energy. So what is the typical student that, that is attracted to the studio? Oh, that's the worst question. <laughs> no, it, it really is. It's... Um, and again, this next term, it's, uh, the applications reflect the same thing. There are students with a, I think their aspirations are to fit into the future and not to align themselves with the fashion curve. They're, they're students who are actually capable and excited about thinking beyond the fashion curve, thinking outside of the kind of careerism, which I think has most students I encounter in thrall. You know, they want to go work for Zaha or go work for Coop or something like that. And that's a pretty well-traveled career path. And I think there's a level of confidence in the future characterizes most of these students where they really are trusting the fact that they are going to be leading in a kind of um, disruptive technology. I think they just love it. They just love it. Do the students have pretty diverse backgrounds that lend themselves, you know, to this type of You know, that's a hard thing to judge, actually, Uh because they're almost all from China, and they're from what one imagines are fairly rigid educational system where they're channeled. And so as you review the work, you see tremendous level of aspiration, but you don't see many breakthrough things. They were very, very strong. In fact, this next group is also strong in dealing with data. You almost never see that in an American student's work. So you'll see pages covered with beautiful little diagrams, very much like in the book, beautiful little demographic diagrams and things where they've very thoughtfully assessed data and tried to turn it into architecture. So that was a real asset. But I wouldn't say that they were particularly adventurous as designers. And I think this has, um, in a way, made it what they're doing in this class so productive because I don't think they came at it with a formal preconception. And you certainly don't see that in the um, composition of the teams. You know, you don't see somebody saying, oh, this ought to be parametric, and another one saying this ought to be, uh, you know, sort of um, more rudimentary. You know, you know what I'm talking about. That doesn't occur within the teams. The teams seem to mesh on this, this frequency of elegant solutions. And those, I mean, I think their solutions are mind-bogglingly elegant. And especially they're dealing with something they've never dealt with before. But there's a tremendous cohesion on the team's parts. We only had, actually, the, the two girls you spoke to in the corner. They're the they're two that, that motivated, they wanted to split off and do their own thing. And that was the only instance in the whole class of 25, so... Maybe the ones that did the, uh, like the splinter station? Yeah, the splinter yeah. station, yeah. Yeah, the Turk and the Indian. <laughs> so they wanted to split off from each other? Or no, from, no, no, from no, the larger group? from okay. the larger group, yeah. To deal with the intermediate station somewhere in between the major... Yeah, but that wasn't, the, the rationale was not that that's what they wanted to do. Oh, the rationale was really just to be They separate. wanted to have their own project. They didn't feel, they didn't... I, well, you know, this is where gender comes into it a little bit, I think. I don't think they felt that they were being heard uh, in the more male-dominated teams. A mm. little bit of that. It's a bit. 
Well, the separation of tasks and how the students are all developing their own concept, it seems. Correct me if I'm wrong. Each all, team, yeah. Yeah, each, each team is developing, like I think, each their own concept. Given the gigantic scope of this, of the idea and all the factors involved, I might have imagined that to approach this as a studio, you see it as one problem, and that one problem is divided up into separate factions, yeah. and then each team of students devotes, one is devoted to interiors only, one is devoted to transit hookup only, like, so trying to be more mm. assembly line about You know, it. I just read an article just this morning in, I think it was in the New Yorker, contrasting Google's organization with um, Charles Sloan's organization, General Motors, mm. and Sloan organized it just the way he said compartmentalize that you're a transmission group, you're an engine group, you're this and that. And the idea that you can fuse all that stuff, to not confuse, but fuse it together in a single team, it's relatively recent. And so what happens, because the capsule design is sitting next to the tube designer, the tube designer is sitting next to the station designer. So within each of those groups, they did kind of have peaks and, and valleys mm -hmm. of interest in various aspects of the system, but they saw the whole system as one completely harmonious system in which all the parts talk to each other. And that's, again, to me, and I think it's true, is very 21st century. You know, 19th century, each individual part is made and then somebody glues it onto something else. And here we've got this incredible opportunity to just start from zero mm -hmm. It's remarkable that they were able to decompartmentalize themselves and, you know... And get, it makes sense not being able to compartmentalize things when you don't know what you well, have yet. Well, that's true, too. So you don't... You might not know how to compartmentalize. Yeah, you might... Best to deal with making that efficient yeah, after the fact. Yeah, because it's all blurry edges. Yeah. yeah. yeah but yeah. given that, because there's so many different factors... Um, could you talk a little bit about all the different collaborators or experts that you've had come into the studio and give the students advice and talk with them about the different aspects? Oh, sure. Well, I mentioned Larry Gertz. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are, are um, retired people and some are, are still active. But Larry Gertz was vice president of uh, Disney who did design um, Planet Earth or whatever it was and does a lot of rides with multiple projections and boarding sequences and kind of capsules that have screens and so forth. So Larry came in and talked with the students about some of the things they might address. Then Jeff Wardle, from, who's the head of transportation design at Art Center, gave a lecture out at Art Center to the students, very generously spent a whole afternoon with them, toured the whole facility, and, and actually showed them mock-ups that they're making of auto interiors, which I think have gone a long way toward inspiring the students to do this. Carl Magnuson, who's a uh, very high-profile furniture designer, came in to talk with them. What's the guy's name from... Oh, I'm bad on this. I'll get it to you. I was looking for an introductory lecture, and I came across an article that um, Samuelson from UCLA, I didn't know he was from UCLA, had written in the New Yorker magazine debunking the Hyperloop, saying it'll never work. So I called him up. Said, get out of here, talk to my students, tell them why it won't work. So that was the first lecture. Was um, He came in and told the students why the Hyperloop wouldn't work. And by the end of the dialogue, he was fairly convinced it would. So that was a good event. And um, we had um, Martha Wellborn and her assistant from Metro, 
came in and made a presentation about how, how Metro plans its routes and um, uh, shocked everybody by saying it's easier to cut a tunnel through a mountain than to lay track on the ground. You know, so that was a, another nugget. So we really tried to give them... Oh, and, and Sid Mead came in, the science fiction illustrator. He's an old buddy of mine and uh, gave him a kind of future-oriented talk. So, uh, yeah, the idea was just to ground them at one, on one hand, but also to, you know, look at the, at the future. Science fiction of it, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I think that they, it had a big impact, but it was, a, interestingly, an impact in both directions because many of the people that came in and, and discussed the projects you know, there was a learning curve on the other side as well, right? So it's kind of neat. So you've obviously completed a lot of research already, even though the studio is half through. What do you imagine will happen when the studio ends with all that research? You mean after the... When, when the students have gotten their degrees and everything's over, what's the next step and what will happen to all of the uh, research that's happened throughout the course okay. of the studio? Um, this is a slightly sensitive issue, so I can't really go into yeah. it. But there is, you know, there will be issues of intellectual property and of potentially patented ideas. And there are discussions underway to kind of make sure that the students are treated fairly in terms of um, their creative endeavors. And so the UCLA has a whole department devoted to that. And so that'll be something that's getting worked out. It's being addressed. Okay. Yeah, it's really important. Definitely. Yeah, because this is not just a you know, purely theoretical shred anymore. No. This is very... <laughs> yeah, it got very tangible. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it got very tangible, I think, much, much faster than anyone, even the folks at Hyperloop Technology, who's our, you know, collaborator. It's lifted off the ground incredibly fast. That, you know, there just is an appetite in the world for this sort of transformative technology. And um, it appears that there's a groundswell of um, interest Hyperloop is in, uh, those guys are in Dubai right now discussing a route in Dubai. He's been in Florida discussing a route in Florida. It's um, almost certainly going to happen. Scary. (laughs) So the goal with this studio, the goal with this studio this year was to investigate the Hyperloop experience with the stations and the the experience inside the loop. Can you just uh, briefly talk about what the goal with next year's studio is the year after this you mean after the hyperloop is finished well the, the or second the next phase, term the second yeah the next term. okay this next term which starts in about two weeks we're going to divide the students into smaller teams and have a site for a station so they're going to do a far more engaged urban plan and architectural design than they've done to date right now the stations sprawl into whatever space they you know they they ideally occupy but when you're on a constricted urban site, then what happens? So we'll have smaller teams, probably three students each, developing the station design, urban design. You brought up the parking and services type of aspect. So that will become, and they're very excited about this because they're architects. Now they want to design something. Up until this point, it's not really designed. It's well, some of the animations look pretty cool, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, wishful thinking in terms of structure, enclosure, and so forth. So we'll bear down on the architecture in this next following term. So they've got 
a work that they can be proud of in terms of their architectural education. So what do you imagine the time frame if, if everything goes exactly to plan and all of the ancillary technologies that are evoked in this kind of come to a head at the right time, when could we see Hyperloop in California? Well, I don't know about California, or frankly. Anywhere. Anywhere? Okay, so Quay Valley has crafted a deal to build a test track. And Quay Valley is a development, a proposed development in the middle of the Central Valley, correct? Correct. So it looks like there will be roughly about a 10-mile right-of-way. You know, that will advance things. They want to begin structure 2016 on their infrastructure. That means that the, you know, the route for the track and the production of the track would be kind of gearing up in that realm. And if you give that, I don't know, two years to get a track in place, that gives us a two-year window to create, or gives Hyperloop Technologies a window to create and build capsules. And that's certainly doable. So double the time, say 2020. It's right around the corner. It's quick. So for those of you curious about the work generated in the studio, watch out for an upcoming feature on Arconnect showcasing some of the design solutions from the students. Some of those were pretty cool. What do you think, Amelia? There were some amazing projects. I also was just impressed by the fact that instead of all of the students in the same studio working together on the same singular proposal, they really were trying to tackle this momentous, unprecedented problem of trying to create a transit hub for a technology that doesn't exist yet, trying to attack that from a, a bunch of different angles. So some students had the location based in LA, that the LA terminus station, that was their site and their proposal. Some had the um, intermediary stations, which is already kind of an interesting prospect because, as we know it, would the Hyperloop be even able to stop if it were going the speed that it is intended to go, if it could stop halfway between San Francisco and L.A.? So I was amazed. I was really excited to see what the students had come up with and, and how much they are invested in these projects because it's a complete, it's a blank slate. You know, they have no prior um, Hyperloop stations to go visit <laughs> elsewhere and get an idea of what they might be going for. It's a total new platform. Yeah, I was really uh, surprised by how many different, completely new problems had to be resolved in the design of these these hubs. You know, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a completely new type of transportation that requires all different types of requirements. And we're also dealing with moving 6,000 people per hour, which, you know, is going to cause quite a bit of activity within the city, just moving that number of people. So there's, there's a lot of interesting problems that have to be solved that never have had to be solved in the past. So it's pretty exciting. And just... The talk with Craig, I mean, it might be a little bit hard to see how shiny his eyes became through the course of talking with him, but he has a background in automotive design and is a very, very interested in transportation from a bunch of different angles. But he was just fully sold on this idea as just a vision of the future that he wants to get in on. And it was really inspiring hearing him talk about it because he is convinced it's going to happen. So he wants to have that foot in the door, which is really exciting to witness and see the students put their efforts towards that. Yeah, it was really obvious that he loved this work and he was really, you know, at home in this studio. Definitely. And it was just cool seeing like the students' mock-ups of what an, a cabin might look like. Because when you tell someone you're going to be effectively shot out of a gun towards San Francisco, <laughs> that's not the most calming psychological transit experience. However much you may dislike Amtrak, that this is not, uh, <laughs> this is not comparable. So that whole design issue is is a discrete 
experience that has so much, needs so much thought to have go into it to even become feasible. And so seeing how they were trying to collaborate on all of these different scales and all of these different methods, it was, it was just incredible. And I, I liked how they were incorporating so many other technologies that are just emerging right now, like autonomous vehicles and uh, robotics, you know, warehouse technology into creating a transportation system that is so incredibly efficient and forward thinking. And also the students that they have the stake in it. You know, it's been a back and forth issue constantly whenever a student or whenever a studio is working on something that is eminently real or potentially real or in the eyes of the actual studio leaders, definitely real and, and imminently real. So it's fascinating student relationship that gets fostered in these types of scenarios. You know, it's interesting that every time they talk about a train or uh, some kind of system like this, I think back to the movie Singles <laughs> and I think about the one uh, one, uh, do you remember Singles? Mm -hmm. I do, you know but many, many of our listeners will not, but I do. Well, go watch Singles. And there's this one guy who's really passionate about this, about this um, rail system in Seattle, how it was going to revolutionize. And he was passionate. It was, it was hitting a brick wall all the time. And I keep thinking about this country wouldn't be the country it is today without a transcontinental railroad system. The fact that we don't have one in other countries still figure out how to fly and yet still have a transcontinental rail system that gets people to the destinations they need to get to in such a short amount of time. It just, I can't understand how the forces that created what we had in America uh, 150 years ago, 160 years ago, has diminished so far that they don't have any resonance. Even with the, the people who are kind of... Um, romanticized the American past. This is not something that is still doesn't hold any value for anyone anymore. So I'm glad that they're doing something very advanced and I hope it doesn't go to other countries before it hits us. Well, it sounds like it might be hitting Dubai before us. Yeah. I mean, they're pitching, uh, I think uh, he was referring to Elon, is pitching the Hyperloop project in Dubai at the moment. And I mean, I am guessing that they're going to jump on that, you know, because it's new and it's exciting. So it's probably going to happen there first. I mean, I think that wouldn't be too outlandish of, a, of an assumption. Oh, Rem Kulhas today said that he thinks Dubai is becoming very sophisticated in their architecture, right? Sophisticated. Yes. That they've sort of, what he actually said was they've sort of moved past the initial sort of cartoonish, hey, wow, we can build big buildings and are moving into a very sophisticated living environment now. And the immediate Twitter reaction I saw was, what the hell are you talking about, Rem? <laughs> <laughs> That's the fastest transition in architecture I've ever seen in my life. Because, I mean, it, it was just a couple of years ago that, you know, the only thing in the news about Dubai and architecture was how crazy it was. Yeah. So he's now, Rem is now coming out and saying that it's, they're, they're growing into themselves. They're becoming more mature. So, I, I mean, I could see a hyperloop happening there before the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder. I would, I really loved the interview with Craig, and I think it sounds amazing that the students are getting to work on this. Amelia, you mentioned this thing about them having a stake. And one of the things I couldn't help but think about while I was listening to the interview was that students are working on a project that their professor is deeply involved in. And I think there's been a lot of criticism on Archonnect about professors using their students to do sort of background work for them for projects that they were actually doing themselves as professionals, that they were getting paid for. A professor would get a job and would then say, okay, I'm going to run this as my studio project so that they could get a bunch of background analysis and proposal ideas. And, you know, I think it's a little bit of a question whether that's ethical. I certainly never had a problem with it because I feel like as a student, and it sounds like these students working with Craig are excited about the prospect of working on something that might be real. Right. So it, it, it's more meaningful for them because they are working on something that's an actual project rather than, you know, let's drop things and find form in them or whatever. I mean, was that your sense from these students? Absolutely. I mean, they're all MR2 students who are doing this nine month program completely 
because they're obsessed with this idea. They would not be there if they did not want to have their work be used in that way. And they're certainly right. not getting anything close to a traditional architectural educational experience that this is about something that not only has just a scale that is even not, it's not, it doesn't really fit neatly into anything. It's not just transportation design. It's not just urban design. It's not just urban transit planning. It's just everything coming into this strange collision. So I don't think any of the students involved had any preconceptions that their work would be used in any other way. And that that might just be an extension of how the whole architectural educational higher education system is even built out to accommodate these types of projects, that that might be the position to become a little bit suspicious of is how if we're creating these entire institutional layers solely for those things and whether they should just be like classified differently. But I think that in general, I think that, that it's kind of a two birds with one stone scenario where the students get a degree and they also get to commit to something that they are really obsessed with, or at least give the impression of that. And in this studio, you know, it's like we got the impression that the students and the and Craig are just they're one on one. Like it's less about one working for the other than them all being involved in this, like as they're going along. Well, yeah, I mean, Craig certainly sounded as excited about the discovery process as, as anyone could be about any project. Paul, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, while we we're on the topic of students, I thought it was interesting that only one of the students in the studio was American. Yes. A little bit over two dozen students and nearly every other student was from China, I believe, which is just, you know, it's a fascinating cross-section, which which is indicative of a trend that is consistent across other higher education architectural institutions. But in this particular, it was like a lot of those people definitely aren't familiar as well with the scenario going on in California. So it brings in a very different and potentially really exciting, but also just fascinating experience for the students to be working in a very real scenario. Definitely. Hopefully real. Hopefully real. Exactly. Hopefully real. I'd love to see this. I'd, lo I'd love to see this materialize in my lifetime. Yeah, I would too. It's a weird <laughs> juxtaposition when uh, Donna talks about, you know, students doing work and not in compensation and all that. And, and I was just thinking about how the railroads were built in large part on the on the west coast by Chinese labor and knowing, slave labor basically mm, yeah yeah oh, so it's a little, little interesting it's a minor note but you know it's interesting in that the schools do own the work that the students produce so I would right. be worried less about the students not getting something from it and I think that's kind of what uh, was touched on a little bit maybe um, you know there's a little bit of a um, interesting negotiation going on around how students are uh, treated in this regard because it is such a big deal. So I think that, you know, to that end, I hope that they get some fair, whatever that word is. I don't, I don't want to say compensation because it isn't, it's not, from what I understand, it's not that, but um, some, um, they'll all get a Tesla. Oh. At least a Tesla. Can I come to the studio? <laughs> so, <laughs> Amelia, I wanted to ask you, You one of your predictions from our, our holiday show was that institutions were going to be much more involved in the building of things. That's a really bad paraphrase, but you you mentioned the word that, that these projects are getting to be so big and that institutional connections with private public entities, things like that could be more the way that we're going to be building. I mean, I know some schools, certainly universities, not in architecture, but in other realms like science or technology, they're having to deal with the idea of, uh, or the problem of students coming up with something that's a patentable idea, basically. And how do you deal with compensation if it's a school project versus a, you know, something that's, that's just done privately by business? Is this, this Hyperloop project, is that the kind of thing you were thinking about when you were predicting, Amelia, that uh, larger institutional forces would be affecting architecture? You know, I am trying to refrain. I'm trying to go back to my 
New Year's mentality. And I can't speak directly about that prediction. However, I totally think that this is in line with that. Yeah. I think that there are so many tricky issues to navigate in like labor rights and just what you think education should be in general, whether you think it's more useful or more helpful or whatever in to aspire to this type of pedagogy. Or this could just be like a way to get rid of this form of or an interim phase to removing the entire higher education model, like entirely. Right. So instead of removing it, kind of reverting to a more apprentice like status and like for a lot of disciplines, what might make the most sense. But this is absolutely like in line. With the, yes, I do believe that especially in architecture, higher education institutions will more or less become collaborators with civic entities, especially if they're a public university, you know, and that's, and that's already the case with so much research that's being done in other university forums. You know, if you're doing PhD work, it's obviously not like only for academic interests. It's like definitely goes out into the world as a published document if you play your cards right. So I think that maybe this is just where design disciplines might just adapt a little bit more to those other types of more hard sciences where the research gets packaged in a different way. Well, in the case of this studio, I mean, there's nothing that these students are going to do in nine months that are, that's actually going to get used. I mean, I'm sure ideas will be brought up that could be applied to the final product, but that's, uh, I think that's, that's information that, that should be shared. How do you take an idea that might then be used to build something real and put a value on that? You know, I think that's where we start getting into that kind of murky territory of, you know, patents and intellectual property that has a really dark side. I think school is a place to explore ideas. And I think it would be a shame if uh, commercial interests weren't allowed at least access to, you know, these ideas through some kind of moral, ethical way without having students, you know, sign away their, you know, lives to any ideas or work that they do during school. Or to not be graduating with $200,000 in debt. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> you know, yeah. That, true. You know, if there was more money in the institutions that was public money and the students weren't taking that debt burden, then it seems like the magnanimity of sharing all those ideas would be more palatable. And I'm not saying that it's not, but yeah. I do think, that's yeah. That's a very good point. I mean, I think that the education system has a lot of work to do. It does. Yeah. Just the one quick point. The one risk that is not always apparent in doing something of this nature is that do you get working on someone's pet project and that you don't have anything immediately translatable on the job side? And a good example is that when I was at NJIT, all the studio professors were pushing this one particular software. And this is like early 1990s. And they were pushing this one particular software. And they always said, and this is not lying. They said, oh, this is what the Port Authority uses. You, you definitely want to use this. And we couldn't figure out, nobody could figure out, nobody liked it. Nobody liked working with it. And it's like, well, if we get, if that was the only piece of software that the entire studio environment had, and you're training on this and no one else uses it but the Port Authority, who am I going to go work for? So if I'm working on a project that has a really only a pipeline to one specific conduit, and then I've spent, you know, two years or nine months or whatever, like, you know, I know this one's nine months, but if I spent nine months on that, am I going to get anything out of that that is translatable to a job? I'm sure you will because you're working with the cream of the crop of the, across various disciplines and you're working, you know, in a very highly regarded institution. But I think that's a pitfall that lingers in my mind. Sure. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. I mean, Hyperloop is a very exciting idea. And with Elon Musk behind it, it would be amazing to see it happen. Yeah. I mean, I've said this many times, but if there was anybody except for Elon Musk behind this, I don't know how much value I would put to this, the end product. But Elon Musk has managed to pull off some pretty amazing in his yeah. career. So this is looking, uh, you know, 
pretty realistic. The most amazing feat will be when it gets installed before California High Speed Rail has taken its first <laughs> trip. Exactly. Which is a whole other topic. <laughs> but uh, it's it's definitely, Ken, what you brought up of like, you know, we don't have this in, this truly functional interstate rail system. Yep. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. It's a little bit embarrassing. I mean, I guess you could call Elon Musk a new Andrew Carnegie of sorts for the new millennia. We'll see what happens. He's great. So what we also wanted to take some time to do this episode is after last week's news of Michael Graves passing away on the 12th of March, we wanted to take some time to just talk about what Graves' life was like, as who he was like as a person, and obviously how he created this um, architectural legacy that has made such a huge impact, not only in architecture, but in other modes of design for his work in product design and particularly with the um, medical industry. So we talked with Patrick Burke from Michael Graves Architecture and Design, who's been at the firm since 1982 and was very close with Graves and worked with him on a bunch of different projects. And it was very heartwarming to just get a chance to hear what Graves was like from this guy who was so close to him throughout a large portion of his design work. And we had a great sit down talk with him just to kind of reminisce and try to figure out what Graves was like as a person. So we can listen to that now. I mean, it was a hard thing to have to anticipate because Michael was getting older and you could tell that that day was coming sooner sometime rather than later. Um, But you never want to wrap your brain around what would happen when. Yeah, it's been kind of sad. We are, we've been stunned by the number of people reaching out to us through email or telephone. And in fact, I think for all the partners, all we did for the first maybe four days was just connect with people who are reaching out to us. So Michael left behind a lot of students and, and other architects who he had touched in some way. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even members of the community that haven't had direct relationships with him have been affected by him because of his influential status in in the architecture community. Yeah, everybody knows who he is. And then even as a product designer, I remember I was once playing golf and and I was a single and I was paired up with a group on vacation. And they, you know, what do you do? And you tell them what you do. And said, I worked at Michael Graves. And they said, oh, do you do all that stuff at Target? And I said, (laughs) well, I'm an architect. I don't really get involved in the things that we do for Target. And they both stopped and looked and said, Michael Graves has architects there? So so some people see Michael in another way. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been interesting following all of the news articles because a lot of the news that's been posted in the last week is actually coming from the uh, non-architecture community, you know, referencing all of the work he did as a product designer. Right. And it's just fascinating seeing how deep his extent was, knowing that that was the most accessible forum that people often found him through. And so, Patrick, you started with the firm in 1982, is that correct? That is correct. So how did you first meet Graves and what was your first impression of him? Well, I saw it was an undergraduate school in Chicago, the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Michael came through for a lecture. He grew up in Indiana and some of his former high school friends became some of his first clients. So he was going back to Indiana to do work. And so he was showing a couple of these new projects he was working on to our architecture school. And, you know, I have to admit, at the time, I thought, oh, those are interesting. But it it wasn't, you know, like they wowed me that much. But I got to know a little bit more about Michael as I was finishing school. And and Princeton was a very interesting architecture school at that time, had an amazing faculty. And I wanted to go to graduate school. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll apply to Princeton, see if I get in. And I did. And so I came to Princeton. I had Michael for the very first studio class, which is where you design projects for a semester, and then at the end, I had him for my, as my thesis advisor and got along with Michael great. And he had a way of 
getting students enthused about their work. He brought a passion to the studio. He had a way of getting the most out of you. Everybody worked harder than the other studios when they were in Michael's studio. And um, so at the end of it all, he asked me if I'd like to come join him in the office. His office was really just taking off at that time. The Portland building had been designed, the competition had been won, and they were just about to start construction on it at that moment. And Michael was starting to get other commissions. And so uh, I thought, well, sure, it'd be great to go join Michael for a year or two. I thought I was gonna be there for a year or two and then <laughs> go off to New York City or something. But you settle in and you know the, the office at that time especially was sort of an extension of the university. Most, not all, but most of the staff were former Princeton graduates that all came from, you know, a period of maybe four or five years from school. We put in, you know, 90, 100 hour weeks, week after week. It was a mission. You know, what we were doing, we were pretty passionate about. And it seems like the firm really retained a strong connection to Princeton, like throughout its continued existence and that it made a conscious effort to stay there and not maybe expand to other places such as New York. How was your relationship with Graves? How did it change over the course of nearly uh, more than 30 years working with him? It didn't actually change all that much. I mean, uh, we were always friends and we always respected each other's designs. I mean, uh, I think people always think that the, you know, the name architect that leads the firm is doing every single thing. And the truth is in the firms, it's more of a conversation. And so we were always able to converse about design in the same way. I, can't, I wouldn't say that that necessarily changed. But, you know, when I first started in the office, I was young and kind of in awe of Michael. And I was, he was a mentor and you're just inexperienced, right? You, you haven't worked that many years. And then after a while, you become a senior person and then you become a partner. And, you know, then you're in some ways, everybody's equal uh, who's leading the designs. Do you want to talk maybe just a little bit about what Graves was like as a person? Because I think, you know, especially in the aftermath, immediately after someone passes away, it can be really difficult to, for everyone who has known him as a kind of entity or as a architectural icon in a way, it can be difficult to try to understand that not only was he that and known for the work, but also that he was a person and trying to get to know that person behind all of that significant work. Do you have anything to share about that? Like, what would you say to help us get to know Graves, I guess? Well, first and foremost, Michael was very passionate about uh, design. He really cared about doing things well. And the culture in this office was to try to do it better, whatever it was we were going to do. But he did that without, he was never mean. He was always a pretty friendly guy. He's very likable and personable. He could be actually kind of funny and silly at times. Uh, in fact, he, one of his favorite phrases was he hoped something, you know, something we designed or something we did would put a smile on people's faces. He was a dog lover. And over the years <laughs> I've been here, there have been, I think, three different dogs that Michael had that would come live in the office, uh, which at times that meant that other people were bringing their dogs. So we went to places where we could have had four or five dogs running around. the office. <laughs> That's quite That's an image. Lovely. When people come here, because we're in a series of um, historical houses uh, you know, out in this town of Princeton, people think we're very laid back. And because people are dressed casually, their dogs running around, there's music playing. And in some ways, that's true. That's the environment Michael liked. That's why he stayed in Princeton. He didn't really, he wasn't looking for that kind of uh, New York urban office. But the truth is, people were pretty intense about their work. Everybody was highly motivated here. So it had this air of casualness, and yet people worked pretty hard. Michael loved sports, and he grew up in Indiana and went to undergraduate school in Cincinnati. So he was, a, he was a big Indiana University basketball fan. So whenever they had good teams, he was, he was all over it. I mean, he would have a TV on his desk to watch games in the evening if, if uh, they were having a good year. He, he's a lifelong Cincinnati Reds fan. 
loves it. I'm a Cubs fan because I grew up in Chicago. Mm, some friendly needling. <laughs> Back and forth about how our teams are doing. Michael, later in life, took up golf and, and really became a passionate golfer. He was nuts about it. And it, that was, I think he took it up right about the time that Tiger was coming on the scene. So you had the excitement of Tiger Woods and then he would play as much as he could play. Patrick, this is Donna. I don't know. You probably don't know. I live in Indianapolis now. And so I'm very aware of uh, Michael as a, a, a famous son and a favorite son of the state of Indiana. We, we claim him as a Hoosier. I actually live about six blocks. He is a Hoosier too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I live about six blocks away from where he went to high school. And very close to here is the Indianapolis Art Center, which he designed, which is just a lovely building. The party in it is perfect. It's um, perfectly scaled for the community and the site and for what its its mission is. Um, it, they offer art classes. Do you have anything, do you know of anything in particular that he enjoyed about that project or, or his take on how he designed it? A lot of what Michael liked when he was doing the projects are the people. You know, clients can sometimes be difficult and sometimes they can be family. And I think that was a project where the clients were family. And so uh, I think if you were to ask him today, what, what was his favorite part of the project? He would say the people he worked with. Yeah, yeah, it's a great group. Other than that, I, to be honest, I don't know if he had a favorite architectural part but I think it really was the people. Well, then what outside of architecture and doing all getting involved in things such as, as golf, um, what might have, do you imagine that any of that might have influenced his design sensibilities about what we know of Graves's attention to like the human body and, and later in life, especially working with humanitarian or, um, access issues and such like that? Do you think that his work and his passions, whether there was a mutual benefit in between those two things? I don't know that I could make a connection between golf and the work we did. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a stretch. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I'm a golfer and I don't know how I would connect it to work. He, you know, not a lot, but he played in in some tournaments that, you know, let's just say his stature got him into. So he played in some pro-ams and he got invited by clients to go play places. So that was maybe that little connection. Hmm. But his paralysis, that had a, a major impact on the way he saw things. And uh, he started by, you know, just mostly just grousing about what, what it's like in some of these hospitals. And I guess somebody heard him doing that and invited him to do a TED Talk. And so he gave a, a, a TED Talk in his wheelchair. And somehow that led to us being invited to get involved in healthcare. Um, I think one of, the, one of the first things we did was for Stryker, their big medical supply company, among other things. I mean, they also make things like knees and hips and and back hardware, and they make a lot of medical devices. But they uh, have a division that does a lot of patient room furniture, and they wanted to have one line that was done by a designer that looked better, that maybe the sort of new designers that are working on these sort of nicer-looking hospitals might pick that stuff. When we got involved in it, we wanted it to work better. We knew it was going to look nicer if we designed it, but what we really focused on was how could we improve it? How could it be better? And if somebody were to walk you through what's better about those striker in-room products we did, I think you'd be amazed. Everybody is. And they were like, wow, we've got to have them do something else. So what they call the transport chair in a hospital, that's the, you know, the wheelchair that they take you around on to go down and get x-rays or, or anywhere else in the hospital, hasn't been reinvented in 80 years. And they wanted us to take a look at that. And we did the same thing. We, it doesn't just look better. It works in so many ways much better. And that mission with Stryker kind of led us to a few other places in healthcare. And uh, when Michael passed, we have a, a rehab hospital that's under construction in Omaha, Nebraska. 
it's actually a second facility for a hospital in Lincoln, the Madonna Hospital, and they serve some of the more serious cases. So back, spine, uh, neck, brain, burn, and they're not all, but a lot of the people are in wheelchairs like Michael. And there's a peds wards there that would uh, break your heart if you went through it. And they have an amazing culture in this rehab hospital that where they recognize that they're not just rehabbing the patients, but they're rehabbing the family and the spirits of these people. And so they invited us to design their new facility. And that was something very, very important for Michael in his last couple of years. He was very connected with them. The people were like family. He had just a remarkable empathy for what the people living in that facility were going through because he was there. He did that, you know, and he did that in much worse facilities. So um, I, I can say that Michael's paralysis had a profound effect on what he focused on. Yeah, it's easy to understand like how not only that would become a just an amazing motivational factor having to suffer through these things yourself, or these inadequacies in design, but also to empathize with the idea of, wow, I really have the opportunity to make these changes that I know need to be seen and I have the expertise to do so. Regarding that kind of frustration and that kind of the way that it can motivate you, I'm sure Michael also had, being a practicing architect for such a long period of time, had his own types of frustrations just with how the profession operated in what was expected of him as an architect and how the business was kind of run. Was there anything that you could comment on about that? Like what what frustrated him most about the industry or the profession and what he would have liked to have changed? I think what probably frustrated him most was let's just say the philosophical and aesthetic direction that the profession veered off in. I mean, there still are good people making good architecture, but but there are a lot of clients and a lot of architects who are just making these iconic forms, you know, because now the computer technology allows you to make these shapes, these objects. And so that's what a lot of architecture has become. And I think he's disappointed and we're all disappointed that we sort of lost the rigor of plan making and, you know, architecture that's a kind of a continuum of the history of the architectural language. I think that's the thing that probably frustrated him the most. And we would go for interviews, let's say, and maybe the other three or four firms to make this iconic architecture and the client would want the iconic architecture and, and you wouldn't get the job and that would frustrate him. Then what kind of architects, um, maybe as a, as a role model or such, what, what did Graves most admire? either in an architect or in a way of practice? I think, you know, Michael was always known for how well he drew and he also painted. And he he was great. He really could draw. And I think he admired architects who sat down and just and really drew things. You know, some of these iconic buildings I'm talking about, I don't even know what the architect does. I mean, I think somebody working for him just sits there and makes shapes, right? (laughs) Uh, And Michael really respects people who can draw. And it, it doesn't have to be of his aesthetic. So for instance, Richard Meyer is somebody he he respects greatly, but Richard Meyer's aesthetic isn't Michael's aesthetic. You know, they're quite different. And I think he also admired, he particularly loved, I mean, himself, he loved architects like uh, Josef Plechnik and Josef Hoffman. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but... Oh, yeah. Plechnik's the best. Yeah, they're they're awesome. These are architects who used um, classical traditions, but made them contemporary to their times, uh, made them very much their own language, had lots of idiosyncrasies, you know, and small decorative elements that were really personal and their own thing. And he loved that. He thought that was just, you know, beautiful, joyful architecture. I wanted to read from a little quote here from Todd Williams that was written in the, uh, I think it was in the Times today, from Todd Williams of Williams Chen. He said about Michael Graves, he was extraordinary, a committed and compassionate teacher. 
who opened our eyes and let us recognize form, line, figure, and space. He taught us to think about sight, program, plan, and layered space. In this, he was a master. When I read this quote, I thought to myself, I do really wonder how many architecture schools are teaching those kind of basics of, of, of form in that, that same way any longer. And I think you're, you're correct that that might not be the case. Not at all. And also <laughs> something Michael taught that was particular to his studio is he would have us push the envelope of what the architect does. So we weren't just doing a building. We would take a project and we would take a you know, way out to an expanded master plan and landscape level. We would, at various times, we would have to design room interiors. We would have to design furnishings. We would have to do artwork. We would have to look at the gardens and landscape. And he had us look at everything, which is, you know, again, what people like Pleshnik and Hoffman were doing. They were doing everything. They weren't just doing a building and walking away. Right. Patrick, how would you describe Michael Graves' legacy in terms of, of how the new Michael Graves School for Architecture, it's about to open and, and how the design practice will evolve into the future? Well, the Michael Graves School of Architecture that's going to be built in China is an outgrowth of the program at Keene University here in New Jersey. And they asked Michael to help them put together a curriculum. So Michael and I actually don't remember who he got, but he, he got a few other people he knew from academia. And they sat down and they kind of hammered out a curriculum. But what's different from today is they go back and teach some of the same things that Michael would have taught in his early years. They teach drawing. You draw by hand for the first couple of years, not in the computer. You study history. History seems to have gone by the wayside a little bit. And I think Michael would really hope that that program would carry on and that there would be people being taught some of these other more important aspects of architecture that we're in this call we're griping about having lost. <laughs> exactly. The fundamentals. What you know, Michael would call those things the fundamentals, and he would say, "How can you skip over the fundamentals in a, in a rush to get to computer form?" Right. I think that's one of the most kind of resounding hopeful things that we can take out of the scenario is that the school was set up prior to Michael's death, and that now there's going to be this existence that can kind of carry on, or this institution to help carry on. Besides the firm, of course, that will help carry on that kind of focus and care taken in that in the elemental design processes that he so respected. And yes. especially his early artwork, I was amazed. I read a um, old Paul Goldberg piece um, from the New York Times from 82, actually, the year the Portland building opened. And it's a review of that, but it goes much deeper into Graves's work and kind of introducing him to the the world as like this is one of his first major projects and while he was known very well in architecture circles beforehand kind of like his his major coming out and it is just an amazing piece not only of pre-internet architecture journalism but because it takes those core design elements and the the drawing as such a foundation for building spaces and for Graves' design. And I just, I think we are so happy to have the chance to talk with you and get a little bit of understanding of just Graves himself as a man and also like his, his lasting legacy. So thanks so much, Patrick. Okay, sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we have to go? You know, I think one last thing I would say that would show anybody what Michael was made of is he spent, when he was paralyzed, he spent just about a year in a hospital. And then over the next couple of years was in and out of hospitals. And you know what? He never gave up. Michael always pursued everything as hard as he could. He just never gave up. And I, we all, you know, the rest of us in the office look at each other and think, you know, I would have just retired. I would have just called it quits. But now we look back and we think of all Michael accomplished in the last decade after paralysis. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. It is. He was an enormous influence on the entire world of architecture and design and therefore on the entire world. And uh, we're, we're very sorry that he's, that he's gone. We are too. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter with hashtag Sessions or send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening and uh, talk to you guys next week. Great. Have a good week, everyone. You too. Bye, guys. Take care. Bye.